Lights, lights out, and away we go. Podcasting from Studio 2520, somewhere near Akron, Ohio. This is Tackling the Chicane. Well, Katie, bar the door, Garrett. We're back from Silverston. <laughs> well, uh, if you want to call the Mid-Ohio Sports Car course the American Silverstone, then, uh, yeah, I'd say we're back. Got a little overexcited there about this F1 race this weekend. Uh, obviously, we'll dive headfirst into that, but I'll preface it by saying uh, probably most one of the most entertaining races that I've witnessed uh, since I've started paying more attention to the series again. Um, yeah. p- potentially maybe one of the best races I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have much of a uh, back catalog to work off of, but it's certainly the most entertaining race of the year and uh, a lot to unpack on that one, I would say. Um yeah, just overall one of those races that, you know, in a few years' time you're going to look back on and say that was that was something special. Yes, very cool. Um, but as you mentioned briefly, um, why don't let's talk a little bit about our 4th of July weekend and um, our experience down there at uh, the Mid-Ohio Sports Car Course in Lexington, Ohio. Just outside of Mansfield? Yeah. Uh, So we went to the IndyCar race there this weekend. Uh, And that was my first time going to an IndyCar race. You are the seasoned veteran of the podcast and that, having gone to numerous Indy 500s. However, this was your first time at a non-Indy 500 race. Is that correct? Uh. If you count the, <laughs> you count the couple of times I went back in the late '80s, um, when the series had split for the first time, it would split again um, into two two sanctions. This was CART, um, and I can't. I'm trying to think what the acronym was. It was C A R T, but uh, the open wheel cars that split into into a couple of different sanctions and it was a cart race back in 87 but i had not been back uh since and you're probably correct except for the 500 um in mid ohio i don't think i've been to any other tracks so yeah uh so i had a pretty good time i just wanted to kind of pick your brain what uh you know comparing the Indy 500 to all the other races might be a, a bit of a fool's errand in the IndyCar series, but what what kind of stuck out to you from that experience at Mid-Ohio where you're like, uh, how, how would that compare to your Indy 500 experiences? Well, the 500 is so much more than just a race. It's an experience in the fact that the scale of the place is overwhelming, and there are vantage points where you can go to the highest point in turn one and you can sort of see turn two, you can sort of see turn three. It's far away. Yeah. But you, you can see the track. Um, 400,000 people versus probably what I would estimate to be 
60 to 70,000 people. I, yeah, I, I think you're definitely being liberal there. Might have been 50. Yeah. I don't, it's really hard to say at a road course yeah. and with the people like just in campers and stuff. Yeah. So all of that happens outside of the track at Indy. There's, they let people in the infield, but there's no like permanent yeah. RVs or anything like that. You can't set up there for the weekend. No. Um, it, there is no comparison. I mean, the 500 is 90 minutes of ramp up to the checkered flag like nothing else you'll ever see in your entire life. Yeah. Flyovers, uh, parades, uh, servicemen, hunt by the hundreds coming down the front stretch. Um, certain songs that they sing, Back Home in Indiana, America the Beautiful, Star Spangled Banner. Yeah. Um, this was much more subdued, uh, but that's, there's only one Indianapolis 500, so I I didn't expect it to be quite the same spectacle yeah um but i did enjoy it and i i think uh it gave you a um a unique perspective in the in that you had never been um, in the paddock area or uh, we also had pit passes so um for the entire day saturday and and most of the day sunday other than the actual flag to flag race um, we were I would say inches, not feet, away yeah. from inches. All of that action. So how, yeah, how how did that register with you? Well, I I know I told you while we were there, but I'll just say it for people listening. I it's like you feel like you're you're criminally close to these teams. Sometimes you know they just let you right up into their grill. Like just we were standing over these garages of cars that were being worked on like feet from these guys working on their cars. And then when you get into the, the pit lane, you know, we were there for the qualifying and the warmups. We were literally right in pit lane and just watching them, you know, do a pit stop or just prepare for the race in general or whatever they were doing. Well, you know, you, you know you're incredible. close. Yeah. You know, you're really close when the drivers walk, past you to use the portage on yeah right before the race starts or qualifying starts yeah um you can reach out and touch them literally i think it it's it it's interesting it's an interesting observation because at no point did any person on the crew all the all these 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 people are trying to do is their job so you've got one guy racing around on a on a flat cart with tires, you've got another guy with a rack that has spare, uh, nose cones and, and, um, tail wings on it. Um, you've got toolboxes, you've got just craziness and not, you'll never see. And I know these guys are instructed. You will never hear somebody get frustrated over a fan, maybe being clumsily yeah. in the way of what they're trying to do. Well, I think IndyCar is one of those series where they, kind of appreciate like every fan they have, you know, because it's, it's not even the most popular racing series in America. So like, like they, they really have to like make, make the fan experience good, which it was for me having never gone to a race. I, I mean, if you haven't gone to a race, I think you should go to an IndyCar race as your first experience because you can just get right into the, the whole meat and potatoes of the whole weekend. 
you, you're you're right on top of everything. I thought that was awesome. And basically, for one hundred and eighty dollars a ticket, which that's three days. Yeah. Now, in a course at a course like Mid Ohio, it's general admissions the way to go. They have two sets of stands there. Yeah. Which are comically um, ancient. Yeah. And they're in you're in direct <laughs> sunlight. And they're you know, they're in a decent spot in that they're on the sort of the front stretch, but really the 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 observation point for the weekend at Mid Ohio is to be in the in the garage area in the pits. Yeah. And just sort of walking around to different areas on the course. Um, but f- for three days, if you wanted to go Friday, Saturday, Sunday for 180 bucks, that's a pretty good deal. Yeah, you can't beat that deal at all based on, like, all of what you experience. Right. The only other observation I have is that uh, you got to have more than one uh, person with a, with a uh, square and an iPad. Yeah taking orders for you know ten thousand people yeah i may or may not have lost 20 laps of the race <laughs> waiting in line for a water but yeah. i i mean i'm not really that upset about but, it, but. we were ill prepared too and lazy yeah um, because when we go to indy um, we at least pack stuff you know carry in beer or food or whatever sometimes um, yeah depending on what day it is but um I guess we'll get better at it and less yeah. lazy at it. If we just had a cooler on wheels and a couple folding chairs, we we'd be golden. We'd, we'd be yeah, far better off. You know, I didn't mind standing during the race because you, you know, kind of get a better perspective. But like, there's racing all the time for those three days, and you know, some of these series you're not really all that invested in. So it's just like, man, if I had a folding chair right now, that'd be spectacular. That's the other interesting thing is you know indy indianapolis is 30 days it's the entire month of may so you can purchase what they call a bronze badge pass gets you into the track may 1st through you know except for everything except for race day Um, and that includes pit and paddock pass or at least paddock i don't know about pit but this this weekend was cool because they had the Porsche um, Sprint Series, which is basically very wealthy amateurs. Yeah, not anybody of any of any um, fame, but guys that still probably have seven figures in their setups, and um, they ran those cars multiple times throughout the weekend. And then the uh, Indy Lights ran kind of in tandem with the regular uh, indie cars and then they had a couple of formula series which are like light light indie cars yeah almost like if you completely stripped down and formula one car <laughs> yeah they were they were smaller than an indie car and an indie car is pretty small to begin with and uh like two liter mazda naturally aspirated i don't there may have I don't know if there were turbos on those things or not, but what I do remember is they sounded like a swarm of angry bees. Yeah, it's like if uh that one kid you knew in high school that like cut off the muffler of his Honda Civic. Like that's what it it sounded like twenty of those going a hundred. Exactly. It sounded down it street. sounded sounded exactly like the two guys that I autocrossed with that have straight pipe exhausts and headers on their Miatas. 
Yeah. Um, so, but it was interesting. I mean, you got to start somewhere, I guess. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the gateway series is that formula 2000, mm-hmm. um, for Indy cars. So, um, uh, just quickly, because we have a lot to unpack in F1, but what did you think of the actual race? We saw Scott McLaughlin win, uh, and then uh, Marcus Erickson, who's the current uh, IndyCar leader. leader, yeah, and he won the Indy 500. He was in the top ten. What did you think of the race? Um, it was it was competitive enough. It was nice to see somebody other than you know Scott Dixon, uh, even though he ended up pretty close to the front towards the end, if I, I think remember he correctly. Was, was he? A, he might have been on the podium. Yeah, at one point he got sent all the way to the back, or and he, yeah, and he rallied all the way up to third. Yeah. So that so, was impressive. Other than that, I can honestly tell you that, and we I think we talked about this a little bit on the way home from the races. It's very hard to get a full race perspective when you're watching basically one section at a time. Yeah, you miss it. You miss a lot, um, and they don't have the infrastructure to have uh 60 foot screen everywhere you turn around and they don't even really have a really good pa system so again i think the best thing to do would be grab a couple of cheap race scanners yeah and at least you can listen to the to the broadcast and Mm -hmm. if you want to you know dive into a team's frequency and and listen to a team it's almost it's a must have at a track like that. Yeah, because you're at a road course, you're sitting there and you're seeing ten percent of the track, you know. Exactly. So we missed a lot, but as we discussed before, the trade off is is the pit and garage experience and being able to stand on pit road or, you know, in the pit lanes when yeah. they're qualifying and watching cars enter and exit the pits and how things like that work and being that close to the cars is, that's the exchange, I guess. Yeah, for, I, mean, I mean, at the end of the day, it's still cooler seeing the cars in real life than on TV. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you, if you want to watch the race, uh, then tape it and watch it at home. Yeah, well, I went back and watched it, and, you know, I I picked up on things that I didn't realize happened, but, I mean, I still am glad I went, so. Yeah. Yeah, I think overall that was a success, and I yep. think we'll be back. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So. Well, the let's, uh, let's yeah let's we let's do the damn thing. <laughs> Again, I will say, uh, I watched I watched this particular race uh, over two evenings because I didn't realize that the first hour and ten minutes of the broadcast was. Uh, crash coverage was yeah uh, or lack 30 of crash. seconds yeah lack, lack of crash coverage but i i actually managed to embargo myself i had no knowledge of the finishing order we of course found out sunday that uh, the the accident had occurred although i didn't know it was on the the first turn of the first lap yeah okay so you know when there's a giant crash in F1, you're going to hear about it. And, and so I knew there was a crash. I knew who it was. I didn't know it was right away. And then, yeah, I didn't really know how the race went after that. 
I actually did know who won, but honestly, that really, like, that mattered. But, like, the race was so eventful that, like, I wasn't even upset that I knew who won because there was so much going on in that race. Yeah, so just just a couple of notes here before we actually get to nuts and bolts. Uh, this was the 73rd British Grand Prix. Uh, Seitz was on the pole, obviously. That was his 150th race. Yeah. he's Yeah, he's been around. Exactly. Uh, if Verstappen had put himself in a position to win, he would have tied uh, the number of wins that arguably the most famous F1 driver um, historically, Sir Jackie Stewart. That's a name I do not know. You may you may want to Google that. He was pretty popular in the 60s and 70s and did some commentating after that. Uh, I believe he was either Scottish or um, one of those one of those areas over there. I'm but. giving I'm giving him the goog right now. Milton, United Kingdom, that's in England. So okay. he's English. There you go. Um Oh no no no. Milton. Village in Scotland. Sorry, I got a little carried yeah, away. I was right then. So Verstappen just needs one more win and he can equal the number of wins uh to Sir Jackie Stewart, who's pretty famous. Yep. He's he's good. 142,000 fans for the actual race. Which they had mentioned on the broadcast was the largest race crowd ever there. Right. And for the weekend, they estimated over 400,000. Yeah. So now we're talking, now we're getting into indie stats. Yeah. Or close to indie stats. And one of the things that I noticed was what a great, what a glorious track for overtaking yeah it's huge it's and it made me realize how important it is to have a course where you can actually get things done and how unfortunate it is that they still race on courses like monte carlo which are like one lane yeah and i get the the uh the historical importance um and i think it's good to have a, a nice balanced schedule you know you don't want 22 silverstones but like having a few of those where it's wide open and there's just you know i don't know 100 feet wide of asphalt or something like that and it just it it creates a race where you know you can overtake and there's a lot of action going on a lot of good turns and stuff yeah no i i agree i think it's a great course to for you know, spectacle racing. Well, I had one last note before the race actually started that they, they assumed that the first stop pit window was going to be between lap 21 and 27, which that didn't, now we know that did not happen. So I'm pretty sure Max Verstappen stopped four times which an F1 is, like, completely unheard of. I can't, I still, I didn't go go through and super analyze that first lap, but obviously we know that 
there was a lot of contact. Um, George Russell, I believe it was, it was through additional contact, places his left front into the right rear of Joe Guan Yu. The camera dives off to watch the other two cars that made contact, and apparently he flips over, rides the halo across the gravel, and ends up wedged between the guardrail and the catch fence. There was a space yeah. there. Well, you can see. So they go into the first turn, and the commentator's still talking about all the moves that are happening in the back of the pack. And then you just see in the background Joe Guan Yu just like skidding across in a shower of sparks. And you can see George Russell also going off. And the commentator goes, Oh, George Russell's off. And I'm like, Dude, Joe Guan Yu just scraped by upside down. But I mean, when there was so much going on in that first turn, I can't really blame him for like not noticing or just thinking other things were like more important at the time but needless to say the start was like absolutely chaotic so they they had yuki sonoda out they had alex albert out albon sorry out they had esteban ocon out um some of those guys managed to to get their cars back together and were allowed to re-enter the race George Russell was not allowed to re-enter the race. Interesting to note that it was George Russell that exited his car, ran across the, the gravel trap, basically as a good Samaritan move to see if uh, Joe Guan Yu was okay. Yeah. By the time he gets back to his car, the stewards have it on a crane, on a flatbed already. And apparently the rule is, or the FIA's ruling was, had you made uh, made it back to whatever pit line under your own power, we would allow you to uh, work on the car, try to get it ready for the restart. However, they, they decided that since he uh, took assistance from the stewards that he would not be allowed to return to the race, which yeah, that's the one thing that I love and I hate about the FIA is no other form. I won't say no other other popular forms of motor racing would never penalize another driver for a good Samaritan act or pulling somebody else out of a car or, you know, think about NASCAR. Yeah, nobody's going to get penalized for running up to another car and making sure the guy's still alive or, yeah. or doesn't need help. Well, yeah, NASCAR is like the total opposite end of a spectrum of racing. Um, yeah, it it seems like just one of those like rules where uh, if the FIA isn't like technically in the wrong or anything. And honestly, I don't know if that Mercedes is going to be able to still race anyways. No, but I think they considering that it was basically this guy's home track they could have at least said well you could we'll give you a shot to fix it yeah and i don't know i i don't know if i misinterpreted this or what i i could have sworn they said something about like also the fact that like he exited his car on the track like kind of in a way dnf'd him maybe 
So I, I don't know. Just, uh, you know, obviously it's a strange circumstance when a guy goes flying upside down and then is wedged between a fence. Uh, so, you know, kind of all hell breaks loose. But, yeah, it was unfortunate, especially because all season George Russell has ran at least in the top five, you know, that he didn't get that chance at his home race. But, I mean, I don't know, Some sometimes unfortunate things happen, and that was one of them. For sure. Uh, a couple of other things. I was writing stuff down so feverishly. <laughs> yeah. Because there was so much going on. Um, I noticed that the FIA obviously has very strict rules in place about showing any part of the incident at all until yeah. they find out the condition of the of the uh, driver in this case Joe Guan Yu which again is polar opposite from other race series where you'll you would you would have seen 40 angles and 50 replays of that crash within the first 3 minutes yeah and basically we sat there for over an it was hour. like 30 minutes because i remember like uh like fast forward forwarding because i was like are they gonna show replay this thing yeah it was like 30 minutes before they even showed anything and that was because they wanted to make sure that joe guan yu was like you know alive basically so i i understand that but yeah it is different from a lot of other in just sports in general if someone gets injured or whatever like (laughs) you're gonna see that for better or for worse like a hundred times well and i i think that some other sports could take a lesson. Yeah. I'm uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And it, I totally understood why why the FIA and why the the broadcasters did not show. Because when we saw the first couple of pictures it was there was no way you could tell. Yeah, I mean the car was a you know, right. shrapnel. It was a tangled mess. And we'll we're gonna talk about the halo in our box box segment today. I thought that was apropos. Yeah, because it, uh, I think, basically saved his life. Today. Oh, 100%. Uh, next note, Why? what was Tom Cruise's big gourd doing on this broadcast <laughs> every five seconds? I don't know. Mercedes, and I told you last night, like, I'm pretty sure they just let anyone with a pulse and that will give them publicity into their garage because... Oh, I don't know what race it was. I don't think it was Miami. Maybe the one after. Michelle Obama was in their garage. What the hell? <laughs> what? 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 What does Michelle Obama or Tom Cruise, for that matter, have to contribute? And he's wearing a damn headset with a mic. What are you telling Lewis? Oh, good lap there, Lewis. Uh, go watch Top Gun after this. Like, what the? What the uh, hell are you doing? I- I know two things about Tom Cruise that I didn't know before this second movie came out. A, starting back from the Days of Thunder day, you know, racing class, his first racing movie, he is quite the enthusiast. And he, from what I understand, he's a fairly good driver. Okay. He also is a, is an, uh, accomplished pilot and has his license to fly 
F-18 jets and owns a P-51 Mustang trainer that he fl- flew back and forth to the set of this second Top Gun movie. Or mm. third. Is it second or third? Second. Okay. It's a reboot. I, so uh, I didn't realize he was, you know, as experienced as he is behind the wheel still. A little cheesy. Yeah, I don't. I and, think. and he was talking to Lewis after the race. What? Why? I don't know. Maybe maybe they're maybe they're buddies. Yeah. Be, but I'll I'm gonna have my eyes peeled for any other can of corn celebrity sightings that I and they I, I I know they were trying to fill time at that in the first hour, but it was like every three minutes it's oh Tom looks very concerned. Like oh Tom Cruise he's missing his Scientology meeting for this. Anyways, uh, yeah, well, uh, new challenge. Let's see what cornball Mercedes brings in next. And note it. Yeah. And we will discuss it. And if In, in great the, detail. If the good listeners out there are watching these races, uh, please pay attention and help us. Uh, where do you want to go next? I... Well, the restart was as bad as the first lap <laughs> as far as just Yeah, I mean, I guess we should go to the restart. I just want to say before I don't know if we like formally announced this, but Carlos Sainz wins this race, okay? 150th Grand Prix start in Formula 1. It's his first win. So, I just come on. Let's a little kudos there. That's that's a hell of an accomplishment for Mr. Sainz. You gotta love that, and I love, I guess, kissing ass for Carlos Sainz. <laughs> that was supposed to be this. <laughs> you, it, a little technical failure, I guess. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, well, when you have a board as big as this one, sometimes it's easy to lose track of the. Well, buttons. there are thousands of buttons on this here mixing board that apparently was in the studio uh, for the Beastie Boys recording, but uh, well. Paul's Boutique. Yeah, Paul's Boutique. That uh, That's what we bought it for. That's what it said on eBay. So um, Nice. That's good. Well, I need to do a little better job with my labeling, I guess. Yeah, well, you win and you lose. But, yeah, uh, Carlos Sainz, kudos to him for winning this race. We'll discuss that more at the end. Well, well deserved. Yeah. Well deserved. Uh, next of note is uh, Perez. Uh, suffers some odd damage uh, to the right, the f- the right front wing on the restart. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Like, let's just preface this with saying, like, the restart was a complete melee, and they didn't. We couldn't figure out until later, as the laps clicked off. Clearly, there was something wrong with Max and his car. Um. Although he was still driving unbelievably. Yeah. He, he just well, didn't have the pace. He Initially, they thought, look, okay, so Perez has contact with Leclerc in the restart. So he has wing damage, and there is, like, visible shrapnel from the car, let's say, on the track. Uh, eventually, Max thinks, this is, like, later on, Max thinks that he, like, runs over that damage like that 
uh, debris, and he thinks that he has a puncture, so he goes in pits, gets new tires, and then I wrote down, yeah, he says uh, something's broken in the rear. He says that over the radio, and he said, and then he later says, like, this car is 100% broken. Turns out that, and this was just by chance where when they were showing or you know some replay this is later in the race what they believe happened is is that he ran over some debris from the contact and it could have been the debris from Perez's car but it damaged one of the venturis in the on the underbelly of the car and it was throwing the arrow off so badly that it felt like the car was broke like, or that, like tire, he had no grip. that he had no grip, but it was basically what, it, that's how sensitive the belly pans of these cars are. Um, so whatever he ran over, I think it ended up being part of that Perez wing, but he was basically what had anyone else been in that car and suffered that kind of setback, they would have ended up in last place. Yeah. Somehow this guy stays right in the middle of the pack and ends up, what, 6th or 7th? 7th. And so, fights off. For Mick the entire Schumacher. race. Yeah. For the entire race. I mean, say what you want about the guy, but he just continues to prove himself over and over and over that he is absolutely the best driver out there right now. Yeah, I, I, I genuinely do believe that there are drivers out on that grid that would have just retired the car. And well, just out of sheer frustration. Yeah, because this car isn't competitive anymore, so what's the point? Max is fighting and is in first in this driver's championship in Red Bull and the constructors. Uh, you know, I think he, you take your points where you can get them. And, I mean, Max basically had to drive a broken car to get points and did so, I don't know, I, he did a damn good job. I well, he actually, on lap 10 overtakes sites and leads yeah, the race well, that, for a bit. Yeah, Sainz goes off the course at that point, and Verstappen goes first, and that's kind of where uh, shit eventually hits the fan for him. Right. Um, Not to be outdone then on lap 11, both Al- AlphaTauri's spin yes. simultaneously. Yeah, they collide with each other. Exactly. So they try to do the old... Uh, let's take the whole team out together. Yeah, well, that's a nightmare. And uh, the first time I had seen Yuki Tsunoda audibly pissed off, which was kind of funny. As he should have been. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, kind of a nightmare from Alpha Tauri. Uh, but just going back to this restart, like, so Signs covers off all of Max's attempts to get past him at that restart. And you know how Max is. Like, he he will beat you to hell and back to try and get you, get around you, you know. Um, and uh, Perez, he I noticed, like, after that incident with his wing and he, like, had to pit, he comes back so fast. He He's in 17th when he comes out of the pit lane. He just churns up the freaking the grid like he was in 17th you look away 16th like every time you look up he's another car ahead which i that's incredible i think like 
he was voted the driver of the day. You know, it's hard to argue against that. Yeah, strong performance for sure. There was just so much stuff happening. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until the final laps that that it kind of sunk in uh, that I that he was <laughs> had made that run up through the yeah, field. Yeah, because it wasn't super like high profile because there's no. so much other stuff going on that like you're just like oh shit he's in second place, which is kind of crazy. And of course the commentators were trying to frame this like how could Lewis Hamilton win this race? But like there was Carlos Sainz and Sergio Perez in front of him. So, yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, I think Hamilton, did he lead at all? He did lead. Briefly. He did lead because Leclerc has to pit and put on, uh, he put on hard tires, which is an ominous moment in the race. Um, So, yeah, he does lead for a moment, and then uh, I forget who overtakes him. But, uh, well, oh, he, he eventually pits. Hamilton pits on lap 34. Yeah, he pits and the Ferraris go ahead of him. And it was a rare occasion in the Mercedes pit where they ran a 4-3. Yeah, there was trouble time. with the left rear. So that's almost double the time that it takes them usually to change tires. Yeah, you want to be like 2-5. And I think um, every tenth of a second in this particular race... Uh, was necessary. Yeah, because it always is, but he goes from probably, you know, fighting with those Ferraris out of the pit lane to having to chase. Just chase. Uh, Not terribly dramatic, but it should be noted that uh, Valtteri Botas, lap 21, I had 21, I think you said lap 22, somewhere in that that area. Uh, Mechanical failure. Yeah, um, I I don't really know what happened there, and, you know, like I've said probably a hundred times already, there's just so much going on that, like, they didn't even really mention much about that because, you know, the race was still going on, and it was just like, oh, Valtteri Baltas has to retire the car, and that was kind of it. Yeah, and as I've said before, you never get, you really have to dig for the, the backstories on the failures especially or the mechanical issues especially they don't freely come back and say oh it was a gearbox or it was a hydraulic issue or we had this problem or yeah you 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 never (laughs) i guess unless you're a diehard alfa romeo and you could dig and dig until you figured out what happened it's just not it's not given up like they'll, they'll throw a graphic up in other series and say, oh, this was a uh, specific clutch problem or this was a, you know, they'll point it out specifically. They just don't do that in F1. It's yeah. just everybody just pouts and, <laughs> you know, yeah, just kind of acts like a five-year-old as they go back to the garage. But Yeah. So after Lewis retires, not retires, but pits, you know, we get this battle with the Ferraris and it was interesting to notice that earlier I'm talking like lap 12 Leclerc radios and says that he's faster with Carlos and like the fact that Ferrari is 
making him kind of just trail Carlos, he said is effing up his race over the radio. Well, we'll we see this and we'll see it again. When two drivers from the same team are running that tightly, especially in P1 and P2, each one is going to argue the case for don't let uh, or don't make me give up this position to the other guy. Yeah. Um, and that's basically what, what had, what transpired then it's no, I'm fine. Or, and if you listen to the radio calls and this is kind of cool for the folks out there that are listening to the podcast, really pay attention to the radio calls because they're, they're starting to, to show, play a lot more audio during the race than I think they, they did even at the beginning of the season. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can hear, you can hear the, the, the pit box say, if you want to stay out in front, you're going to have to run X lap time. Yeah. They were saying 32, nine for right. Carlos. For so the basically sector. they're, they're prepping the guy for, if you can't hit the 32, nine, if we see anything over that, he's coming around you. Yeah. So that's kind of the, what I took away from that, but they, they fought each other. And at first, Ferrari's like, no, go ahead and fight. They actually mm-hmm. said that. Yeah, they they're did. like, go ahead and fight. And then, like, three laps later, they're like, okay, let's 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 just get some points. Yeah, that's know? enough fighting, because Lewis Hamilton was up their rear ends at that point. Well, and you'll notice, and this is just kind of a fact of how racing is. When two guys are fighting, that's only to the advantage of the guy behind those two. Because you're not focusing on your lap times anymore. You're focusing on like getting around a guy or keeping a guy off you. And you no, know, and in the, me- the meantime, P3's got DRS and he's picking up 15 seconds a lap or, you know, 15 seconds every time he hits that button. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. But it's, those are always kind of fun to watch. Mm hmm. Um, but the, the race really turns on its head after Lewis Hamilton pits and the Ferraris uh, are battling each other. And I just wanted to mention that the whole reason Carlos Sainz wins this race is because he basically said, screw you guys, I'm going to win this thing. Because they weren't really like framing this race around trying to get him to win. It was more about maximizing their points which of course the team is going to do but when i don't i don't believe in f1 that there's a single driver that like legitimately is like all about the team like i i think at the end of the day 10 times out of 10 a driver is going to drive for themselves you know and carlos Sainz did and ended up winning so kudos to him i think he should have done that and i'm sure that in a year or so when this this might be two episodes of drive to survive this this race when they decide to to put it on netflix i think the series is about a year behind the actual yeah it usually comes out like a month or two after the season ends it's always interesting to watch on the on the netflix series the debriefs the day the next day when everybody's sitting around the table well this one would definitely be interesting yeah because Mr. LeClaire got screwed over again. 
in my opinion. Um, yeah, I don't, you know, ultimately there's one guy that makes that call. Yeah. So. Um, but lap 39 is when Esteban Ocon uh, has a mechanical failure of some sort and we get a safety car out. And vitally, Carlos Sainz goes to the pits. Someone else stays out on hard tires that he can't get up to temperature. That's Charles Leclerc. And he's in first for the time being, but with basically as a sitting duck with crappy tires that are old and not up to a good temperature. Well, and and perhaps we should have brought this up firstly. The whole reason this turned into a shit show on lap one is because the guys that were on hard tires had no grip. Yeah. And that tire performed horribly the entire weekend. It was too cold. Track temperature was not, you know, was not optimal for that tire. Yeah. Um, but we also saw guys that went on mediums and softs that couldn't do anything either. So I don't know if it was just I, a case of it was just too cold, period. <laughs> I just think, and it was the hardest compound that Pirelli offers, like, in general. So that certainly didn't help. Uh, yeah, I think the weather, you know, I just don't think the hard tires, you know, usually you put them on for durability, but if they're not getting up to temperature, they're basically useless. Well, and you would, you would think that the data would be in place already, although you mentioned the compound, and I don't know if that was something that they haven't experienced before, if this was a new setup from Pirelli, if it was a new new tire from them but usually there's four engineers that are that figure out what tires should be put on the car well i the teams were getting smart by the end i happened to note that um by the end of the race there were i think four guys that weren't on the soft compound tire so i mean eventually I don't know, common sense would say we need to run on the soft, especially when a safety car comes out with 12 laps to go. You know? Right. I Well, the pre-race strategy was clearly, because of the number of cars that started on the hard tire, for some reason these guys, and they could have very well went this way. It just You just don't know. They thought they were going to go out there and run 30 laps before the first pit, Yeah. Put the, put another set of hards or maybe a medium on to finish the race. Um, and it's it just everything, everyone, everything went out the window in the first yeah. 30 seconds. Yeah, so. for sure. Um, so Leclerc does not get the tires that he needs and he's basically left out to dry when everyone's, you know, on softer tires with 10 laps to go. And, um, so there's this big battle for the rest of the race. It's Leclerc, it's Hamilton, and it's Perez. And meanwhile, Sainz is just chilling, grinding out the laps. But so Perez is, you know, battling with Hamilton. They're they're basically going back and forth, and he runs Hamilton off the track, and then that kind of causes Leclerc to go off the track. That's the end of his race. See you later. I mean, he finished fourth, but like, you know, he was never gonna win after that. Uh. Yes, Perez goes wide, which means that Leclerc has to go wide. 
And then Hamilton, you know, he puts Perez off the track, and then they just trade battles. So that that basically set up uh, Carlos Sainz just to kind of cruise to victory at that point. But, I mean, it was a really intense battle between Perez and Hamilton. Best racing that we've seen in the series this year. Yeah, uh, just like really aggressive right. racing. And I, I don't know. We'll have to see. I, it'd be hard to top. I think, I think last weekend was potentially the best F1 race I've seen. Maybe in the three years that I've been back following. So yeah, I, uh, it was definitely the best of the season. Uh, just one last thing, if you kind of want to cap it off here, but I just want to talk about a certain Haas F1 team. Uh, I have it. Um down here yeah but what do you say we do a little a little box box and then we can we can wrap the f1 segment up all right we'll talk about Haas uh after box box okay box box so i i thought uh a good topic for box box today would be the halo device. And I do remember it being quite controversial when it came out, um, just because it was so ugly and so strange when you're obviously the F one cars are some of the most incredible looking machines on the planet. They had a certain look about them for a very long time. And all of a sudden you're going to put a, three-pronged device with a third member or you know prong is directly in the line of sight of the driver yeah and i i remember when i first saw it i was like how do they how do you see around it yeah i mean honestly how how does that not create giant blind spots but i mean it's more a case of looking past it you're not focused on it i'm sure it took some time to get used to but you know it's if you put it out of your field of vision, uh, it must not be an issue. Yeah, I kind of equate it to like, you know, you technically can see your nose like on your face, but you don't like, when you're looking around, you uh, don't see your nose yeah. and stuff, you know? Yeah, I guess that's like, a good you point. you just kind of look past it. Um, introduced in 2018, uh, it was developed 100% independently of... The teams had no say. This was an FIA-approved manufacturer that that developed it. Um, it's supposed to be strong enough to support the weight of uh, two African elephants, and I don't know why they use that as a measuring stick, but it's probably just because it's impressively large creatures. Right. Yeah, um, can deflect a full suitcase at a speed of 140 miles an hour. So apparently, a suitcase was the was the bar that they that they used as the gold standard but Hmm. um i was just kind of looking through um you know obviously it saved uh joe guan yu's life uh gross gross had been involved in an accident uh that that that, the halo was accredited with saving his life uh leclerc at spa in 2018 
Uh, Fernando Alonso's airborne McLaren smashed along the top of his Sauber race car, saved his life. Um, FIA, FIA tests showed that it, it, it improved your survival chances in a crash by 17%, but that seems like a low number to me. I think it's more like... <laughs> 70% probably. Yeah, well, it just depends on the circumstance. I mean, uh, I think one of the reasons why it was implemented is because there were instances where debris came flying into the cockpit at however many miles an hour and, you know, striking heads. And sure. Sure. But that, you know, and it, when F1 adopted that, it wasn't too far behind. IndyCars is slightly different. It's more like a more like a windshield windshield but it, it still has that extra bar that that basically wraps the entire driver's cockpit yeah and what well, and you noticed in the lower series that we saw they basically just ran like a typical halo so right so but it's it's a version yeah of it but it, so i guess it works um but yeah that's the halo for you well, it's good to know. Certainly one of the more impactful uh, developments that they've put on a car in recent years. Well, and just Google, uh, go to any series you want. IndyCar, <laughs> one of the traditions that we had when, when we would go out to Indy is the nights leading up to the race, Thursday and Friday and Saturday, there was a dvd set out and it started and went through the decades mm -hmm. so obviously there wasn't very much footage in the early aughts but yeah by the time you got to the 30s 40s 50s so on and so forth it was a, a dvd per decade and it had all of the the horrific horrible crashes that happened and yeah it, even as as late as the 80s and 90s there were still guys being torn in half basically or yeah. one guy got beheaded and I, i'll have to look that that up but i mean just horrific 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 stuff yeah and we routinely see now horrific crashes where i'm sure that that doesn't feel good yeah <laughs> but you know basically these guys are walking away from cars that are in two pieces yeah, and it happens, you know, these big crashes happen a lot. And, you know, we've kind of gotten to a point where we can kind of just assume they're going to be okay. You know, I mean, you can never be 100% sure, but. Well, the Hans device, too, was a big, huge piece of technology before Dale Earnhardt's uh, crash in the year 2001. One, sorry. There, you know, that particular piece of equipment just by itself uh, changed the, the state of racing and you know increased the safety marginally so uh so has <laughs> let's talk about has uh, i want to well i want to talk about mick schumacher okay because this is his second year in the series obviously he has inherited the schumacher throne um, this was the first time he ever finished in a points. That's correct. Position in P8. And that is four points. Four points. For P8. And Haas collected five. Correct. At the day because Kevin Magnuson came in 10th. 
Right. So one point. we had mentioned in previous podcasts that we would check into the the sliding scale the of scale points. of points. And so I have that information here and it goes a little something like this. The winner receives 25 points. Second place finisher, 18, with 15, 12, 10, 8 points, 6 points, 4 points, 2 points, and 1 point for positions 3 through 10. So basically, I don't know who derived the scale, but 10th gets you 1 point. The winner gets 25, and if you fall somewhere in between, obviously you want a podium. That's Although the winner really 10-point differential between second and, and first, um, you can see how this thing, some guys just, they kind of run away every year. Yeah, if you're, if you're getting a lot of first place and podiums, but you I, stack the points really fast. I suppose there's a method to this madness. And well, you got to win. Yeah, you want to reward people for finishing higher, you know, and it makes each place important. Well, and I'm looking at the, the standings just above this information here. And let's face it, Verstappen has six wins, seven podiums, 181 points. Perez, who's in second place, one win, six podiums. Yeah. So Verstappen has six wins, seven podiums. The next, the second place guy only has one win. Yeah. So, I mean, there's still a huge gap. Well, yeah. And finishing races is also like incredibly important because Leclerc has two wins and not that many podiums. Leclerc, Leclerc. He's, he would be up more. He's probably in third or fourth i would have to imagine i have to put my other he's glasses on he's third in points two wins four podiums yeah Um, but he doesn't finish enough races right so here's a weird here's a weird example perez has one win six podiums sites has one win six podiums but 20 less points so apparently he took a lot more third places than yeah than seconds. Um, but that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And then after that, nobody has any wins. So P five through all the way down, all the way down to twenty first in in uh, driver standings, no wins. And then P eight through twenty five, no podiums either. Yeah, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, let's face it. If if Haas can finish in the constructors' championship solidly in fifth or sixth place, and maybe have a driver in the top fifteen, yeah, um, not a bad showing. Yeah, I uh, I had mentioned in the last podcast that like seventh was probably what they were shooting for. They sit eighth, really tight with um. Aston Martin, but now, I mean, Alpha Tauri doubled, uh, they weren't a double DNF, but Pierre Gasly didn't finish, and then Yuki Tsunoda, I think, was 14th, so no points, but um, 
Yeah, so Haas is now only seven points behind them. Uh, but from there, I think you're looking at seven through ten, at least right now. That's about where they're going to be because it goes from Alpha Tari in seventh with 27 points to Alpha Romeo in sixth with 51. Mm-hmm. So I, I think seventh is what you're kind of shooting for at Haas, at least for now. Um, but, I mean, any any time Haas can run a double points day, that's that's a hell of a race for them, I'd say. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, Mick Schumacher, I think, hopefully, you know, kind of got that monkey off his back, you know, having not having gone so long without running in the points. I, I would really like to see him kick on, you know, and yeah, I mean, get in the points more. Obviously, it would be great to see another Schumacher, you know, get to the point where he, he's talked about, like, a Verstappen or a Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Especially if he's driving for a, a U.S. team. Yeah. That should be even better. Yeah, so. it would be. But, um, I, I don't know. I think we covered what we wanted to with this race. What, what do you say? Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a solid hour. So, are um, we... You want to move on to... Yeah, well, um, just... We have another race coming up this weekend in Austria at the Red Bull Ring. So you can expect a lot of orange of Max Verstappen fans there, I'm sure. Red Bull Ring is in uh, Austria, Spielberg, or probably Spielberg, Austria. Uh, I'm trying to look at it's 4.3 kilometers long. It's two point about 2.7 miles, 10 turns, and the fastest race lap was by the British Grand Prix winner. Carlos Sainz, 105.6 in the McLaren in 2020. So maybe Sainz can go back-to-back. We shall see. That would be be interesting. interesting. Yeah. Um, Um, Well, let's just cap it off with uh, Red Bull still in first with 328 points. Ferrari still kind of lurking in the background, though, here with 265 points. You wouldn't say they're out of it by any means. Um, I certainly still heavily favor Red Bull to win this championship this year, but, you know, I think we're going to get into a circumstance where at least the battle for second is going to be pretty interesting, but we could have a decent title race here. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Should be interesting. Yep. All right. Well, let's shift gears and talk a little footy, shall we? Um, so dad, you watched the Columbus crew play an enthralling nil-nil draw what a match day this was. with the Philadelphia Union, kind of just how the season has gone, uh, but you're kind of dipping your toes into the soccer realm, at least watching it on television and kind of looking and watching the game a little more do you have any initial comments or anything that struck you as important here oh yeah i have a lot of a lot of thoughts excellent um first of all it was an enjoyable game to watch although um i have quite a quite a few stats written down here that 
I picked up on while we were watching the game, but I thought it was pretty interesting. And I think in this case, it's just the style of play that, that was it Philadelphia? Philadelphia Union. What a horrible style of play. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So first and foremost, possession percentage was 65-35, 65% possession to the crew, 35% to Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. But what I thought was interesting is the Columbus crew had eight fouls, five yellow cards, and with 35% possession, Philadelphia had 23 fouls, two yellows. So, you know, 23 fouls, but you have basically possession of the ball half the time. Yeah. um, So what, what, you know, what's the deal with that? It's a style of play that a lot of people like to put into effect because you don't lose a lot of games playing like that. I pointed out when we were watching at one point, they had eight guys behind the ball eight or nine guys behind the ball, which basically just means they're basically nine people are just watching the ball kind of be passed around in front of them and they're being super compact in the box. So they would rather, they would rather take a draw. They would, well, what they would rather do. Well, absolutely. They would rather wait and, you know, basically tell the other team, come break us down if you can, but if you mess up and you lose the ball, we're going to be on the ball right away and we're going to get down the field and try and score on the counterattack. And then we'll go up a goal and then we will completely, what it's called, park the bus and basically just, you know, bunker down on defense and not really have any interest in playing with the ball, you know. And it obviously, and I was, I had watched the game like live and, I had saw you were going to go and watch it the next day, and I'm like, oh, boy, this is not going to be the game he's going to want to see. But, yeah, that it doesn't – it does not equate to very – it's not eye candy, let's just say that. Well, it may not have been the most action-packed as far as scoring goes, but mm-hmm. there was an awful lot of interesting – calls that were made ref the refereeing i don't know enough about the game to say one way or the other if the ref was a hack or not but yeah let's talk about the recalled goal which sure i don't i knew that that was a thing but i i don't think i've ever witnessed it before yeah Um, var video assistant referee does this happen often yes it does happen quite a bit. Uh, some countries and leagues are better at implementing it than others. And I will say, of any league I watch, MLS is the best in that. Because VAR is supposed to be used and implemented when there's a clear and obvious error. That is the terminology, the wording they use. A clear and obvious error in the refereeing decision. So that In that instance... The play was basically Lucas Zellerion scores a goal, but Eric Hurtado is deemed to be in an offside position and essentially obstructing the goalkeeper's view of the ball in an offside position. Uh, I don't think he was obstructing the view, and I'm 
pretty sure most people would agree. Um, and you can never really be 100% sure. Usually you can tell because, like, the keeper, if that were to happen, would make a huge deal about it. And Andre Blake, the Philadelphia Union goalkeeper, didn't really seem that, like, upset. I mean, obviously he conceded a goal, but, you know, he didn't yell and scream about how Eric Hurtado was blocking his view, you know. Um, but, yeah, so the usage of VAR, like, in the uh, Premier League in England happens, like, a lot. And they, I really don't think they are good at using it because they'll whip it out for, I mean, you'll see, but there's been instances where, like, we're talking millimeters of offside and they're whipping out the lines on the screen and, oh, his toe is offside, so can't give that goal. And it just goes completely against, like, this whole idea of clear and obvious error. Yeah, so, of course, some countries are just kind of better than others. But, yeah, I think MLS does well there. Um, yeah, so that was, like, the big event of the the game, I would say, is that recalled goal. And Lucas Zellerion, who's, like, the crew's talisman, uh, is in a bit of a goal drought, hasn't scored since March. I mean, he's been on and off the field. But I mean, it would have been nice to have that goal, you know, have counted, but. Uh, yeah. What else did you? I, so I've got the roster here. Okay. Um, what is player category? Player category. Well, let me let me see. Like you, some of them don't have a category, and then some say this might just be a crew thing. I don't know. It says homegrown or international. Oh, now now we're getting into the. Let me let me let me see this. We're getting into the nuts and bolts of Major League Soccer here. There's this, one here that says U twenty two. Oh yeah, initiative. You're, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna lose a lot of people here because the MLS is an absolute cluster. Well, of like yeah, roster rules. Just nutshell it. Okay, if you can. Major League Soccer. It operates like a North American professional sports league would. There are. Uh, salary caps, which is not a thing in basically every other soccer league. Um, there are like, uh, so let, let's talk about there's salary caps, and then each team gets three called designated players. These designated players, which the crew right now have two, three slots, uh, Lucas Zellarion, Cucho Hernandez, the new signing, and Pedro Santos. These designated players, basically the salary cap doesn't apply to them. So you can spend as much money as you have on them and pay them a, a wage as high as you have. Now, all you have three of those. All of the other players, you need to be within the salary cap, sort of like you know, the NFL or the NBA. Uh, now, again, this is all unique to MLS because they have a bunch of weird roster rules that probably hinder the league a little bit in my opinion um senior would just mean that they are on the senior team like the first team because the crew have the crew too which are like a development team um so you'll hear that in any um soccer league he's on the senior team because usually you have an academy with like u23 u21 and so on um supplemental slots 21 through 25 i honestly don't know and i again i'm not really an expert on mls rules and not many people are because they're so just messed up and yeah. weird i was just curious yeah 
Uh, homegrown is interesting because uh, those are players that are from like the area of the club that were developed in that area. Uh, each MLS club has like a designated territory where they can sign these players that are from the area to home, uh, they're called homegrown contracts and uh, you get like incentive incentives for doing that from the league and stuff so yeah in a nutshell just like different roster rule things interesting yeah and again unique to MLS I just uh, the other thing I just I highlighted some players that I remember <laughs> hearing their names fairly often mm-hmm. I don't know which Morris it was A or J Aiden Morris for sure yeah, he's he okay, so Aiden Morris like completely bursted onto the scene because when the crew were in the twenty twenty MLS Cup, which they ended up winning, they had Darlington Nagby, who you might remember, uh, in the midfield, but he tested positive for COVID like days before the big game. So Aiden Morris at the time was nineteen and had to slot in and he played one hell of a game. Like, he was just, he was, uh like, just completely bossing it in the midfield. And ever since then, he's been, like, that, that young guy that, you know, everyone knows has a lot of potential and just wants to see him crack on. So, yeah, Aiden Morris, I think potentially, I mean, he'd probably have to move away from the crew at some point, but he might be sniffing around that national team setup at some point. I really hope so. Then I had... uh Obviously, the keeper wasn't too busy because no. the other team had only taken four shots. But Eloy Room, Curacao International, he came from the Dutch League. Um, do they start the same keeper every game, yeah, or do they much. rotate him out? No, you don't really want to rotate him um, unless it's like a cup game or something. Yeah. Um, Eloy Room, I have a love-hate relationship and it's been a lot more hate this season because he is just prone to making the absolute dumbest mistakes. They mentioned it, and you wouldn't have known because you didn't watch. The last time they played the Union, probably two months ago, he goes up for a ball and essentially throws it into his own net. Like, he does stuff like that all the time. But you saw he made that kick save. He also does that. Like, he'll just make these incredible saves. Yeah. So, honestly, I'd like to see him go at some point, but right now I guess he's okay as our starter. Uh, obviously, Zeller Ryan. Zeller Ryan. Zeller Ryan. Yeah. Club he, record fee before Cucho Hernandez. and he's, he, he seems to be the go-to for corner kicks. Yeah, he... Penalty the, kicks. The attack runs through him, and when he's on, he is completely unplayable. But like I said, he's kind of working back from injury, and he hasn't been super consistent. Definitely not in peak form. But he's unplayable when he's in peak form. And then I also think, I believe there was, uh, was it Hurtado? Yeah, Eric Hurtado. He's like a backup striker that kind of sucks. He's built like a... A football player. Yeah, like an offensive lineman. Yeah, which is not good. He didn't seem to be... Super sharp with the uh, no, he's, the shooting or he's anything. He's not very so. good. He's just not very good. Uh, I I don't like him. 
to be honest. But the crew do not have many attacking options right now. So he does have a motor on him. Like he he puts in a lot of effort, but he's not a very good striker at the end of the day. So the only the only thing I'll say, and I'm sure this will go away with the more soccer I watch and the the different league play. Mm-hmm. The fact that you can touch someone and have them throw themselves to the ground in agony and flail mm-hmm. around for 30 seconds. Yeah. Um, clearly not. Wasn't, wasn't a factor in other sports until they started doing that shit in the NBA too. Yeah. Which and- I, I don't, I haven't watched an NBA game since 2016, probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I've said it before when we've watched games, it's all about drawing a foul, you know? You're you're buying the ref. You're selling it to the ref, and Understood. it's just part of the game. So um, the, it's not it's not so much the idea that I'm in such pain that yeah. I deserve a foul. It's clearly you're either going to call the foul, whatever that foul might be, or yeah. you're not. And if I don't at least, you've got to make I it give look you like something you're to, to look at. Yeah. You have to do that. That makes more sense to me, and even after watching just a couple of games now, yeah, I think I I get it. Um, there doesn't seem to be, and I suppose this is, again, this is something that, you know, I'll learn more about as I watch. But obviously, every one of these referees has a completely different style of calling. Yeah, it's very very subjective. The and interpretation. I guess that's part of the game too. It's it's almost like in baseball where an umpire one night could have a completely different strike zone. Yeah, it's the same idea where these guys call games differently. There's some like refs that it's like, oh my god, you a player breathes on a player and he's calling a foul. Where other refs, a player's getting chopped down and he's playing on. You're like, what the hell are you doing? So. It's all about finding that balance, and we're, we'll eventually see different leagues within like two or three weeks from now. Uh, one of which I follow pretty closely is the Scottish Premiership, and that that is like heavy metal, like in soccer terms, I guess, where like the, a lot of shit gets allowed, and there's heavier tackles, and I I like the physicality of it. Um, and we'll see also like we'll watch like derby matches like big huge rivalries and it'll actually get pretty intense with the the challenges and the tackles that come flying in so it, it's a case-by-case basis with the flopping and the, the diving shall we say um, but you know it's kind of just part of the sport and the way it goes but yeah certainly sometimes it is exaggerated and more than it needs to be, but I I don't think it was too bad, and it, no. it doesn't take away from the viewing for me. No, and it I I'm starting to get it mm-hmm. when I first would see it from you know walking through the kitchen to grab something to drink and not yeah. paying any attention except for that two seconds of you know watching a replay, Theatrics. right? But now I'm starting to understand the premise. Mm-hmm. Um, what that other what was the other league? 
Scottish Premiership. Are uh, games coming up for that? That starts July 30th. Um, so, again, that's a league I really enjoy. Um, I guess we can – let me just quickly dive into that. That's uh, – there are two teams that have traditionally dominated that league and have traded titles since 1985. That's Rangers and Celtic. And I know you've seen me wear Celtic stuff around. Um, and those two teams are from Glasgow, Scotland. And they comprise the Old Firm Derby. Um, and I think it's my favorite rivalry in the world of soccer. Just because there's so much history and like outside of the field stuff going on. Essentially, if you boil it down, Celtic were founded by Irish Catholic immigrants. Okay, Rangers were uh, founded by Protestants, and if you know anything about your history of Christianity, that uh, those two groups don't really get along, um, shall we say? Um, and then politically speaking, because these fans, you know, it's all about the politics and what makes us different from the club across the road. Um, Celtic tend to lean towards, you know, being kind of sympathizers to, like, Irish republicanism and, like, you know, a united Ireland, obviously, being founded by Irish immigrants. And then uh, they're definitely relatively left-leaning, I guess, but, like, I don't think Rangers are, like, a hard-right fan base or anything, but, you know, they there's, like, the union or the excuse me the labor party in britain and they probably would definitely favor that more and it does get pretty political at times some of the displays these fans put up but rangers on the other hand their whole identity almost is based around like being loyalists and like unionist you cannot watch a single celtic or rangers home game like at rangers they're they're union jacks everywhere which is interesting. And then Celtic, you know, they're flying the tricolor of Ireland. So it's really interesting. And when these teams meet, like last year, they didn't allow away fans for the first couple matchups. Um, and then when they did, it was only a certain number, small number. Um, but usually, like, there will be, like, let's say the games at Celtic Park there will be like 3,000 Rangers fans that will show up, and they, of course, have to be sectioned off. And they will put like literal rows of empty seats between the Celtic and Rangers fans, and you'll just see a, a line of security guards blocking these two teams because like they just will literally fight each other if they're not. What You know how like the Michigan-Ohio State game, you'll watch it, and if it's at Michigan, you'll see, like, pockets of red everywhere. Mm-hmm. You literally, like, cannot do that for this game. And and that's just European soccer in general. Like, the away fans never intermix. But for this one especially, it, you should definitely, I think, do some research on that particular rivalry. But, yeah, I, I, I like Scottish football in general. But, yeah, sorry, I, no. I went deep into this. but Sounds like it'll be... Fun to watch. Yeah, I cannot wait for that league to get going because it's just so compelling to me. But, yeah, cool. 
Um, do you have anything else with the? Um, I'm trying to think. No, I, I, I think for me, just seeing a team like Philadelphia, not even really try to do anything offensively. They just kind of, <laughs> yeah, hang around. But I, I, if that's the strategy, yeah, and you'll, you'll, you'll pick up on like the way teams play and like you'll see a lot of different styles of play some teams are more open and free-flowing than others and that's just kind of like how the managers approach the game i guess that's that's the one oddity about soccer is that in every other sport baseball nba football you know, it's all about the quarterback throwing for 400 yards and mm-hmm. having 30 points. NBA, it's who could break 100 first. Baseball, you know, it's... If you hit home runs, you win. Exactly. And soccer, it's like, well, we could just kick around out here and frustrate the other team to the point where, you know... Like, they'll they'll be so upset, they'll, like, make mistakes and stuff, and you just pounce on that. Yeah, and I guess they were... I looked at it as they were, they seemed like they were perfectly fine with a draw. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they were, especially on the road. So perfectly fine result for them. I guess I never really thought I, in every, again, <laughs> most sports don't count ties. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if a draw is, is as good as a win, then if, if you know that you're not going to be able to out, play them on offense or if you're going to not going to be able to provide the offense in such a way that you're going to crush the other team you might as well frustrate them yeah so. yeah for sure um well i i mean it's probably all we have there i just want to say that most of the european teams have started preseason so we're right around the corner probably about three-ish weeks in the meantime I, I think i i have a couple matches we could definitely watch we'll continue to keep an eye on the crew as that's our local club yeah so look at me okay look at this um upcoming games uh july 9th versus uh chicago mm-hmm. that should be a win which i think that's the team we saw them we play did. live yes and, they and beat them that's their first first meeting this year yeah i think so it's it'll be at soldier field in front of probably two thousand people because <laughs> reasons but yeah should be a win july 13th uh dc yeah should be a win too i i actually saw columbus play dc at home with my good buddy um and they won three nil yeah three nil On, that, that, that was april 30 that was a good game we had yep. a good time and then apparently this is the rivalry. Hell uh, is real. <laughs> Cincinnati. <laughs> yeah. Uh, why don't we talk about that real quick? Um, that game is called the Hell is Real Derby. And if you've ever been driving on I-71 South between Columbus and Cincinnati, you will see signs that read... Uh, jovial sayings such as you know uh you could spend an eternity in hell and 
holy matrimony is between a man and a woman, and then there's one sign in particular that literally just says hell is real. I have seen those. Yeah, you, you got to love those. Uh, well, FC Cincinnati founded in 2016, and they initially started in the USL, which we watched a snippet of a USL game, if you remember. Uh, that's kind of like the it acts as kind of the second division of the American soccer landscape, even though it's like a separate entity from MLS. But um, so they started there and they had big, huge turnouts for these games. And, you know, a lot of USL teams, if they start to attract attention, will really start to push to get into MLS. Um, Cincinnati did that. Nashville has done that. Minnesota has done that. Um, so they had big fanfare, and these teams met pre-Cincinnati MLS uh, in the U.S. Open Cup, which is uh, a competition that is played here in America. Um, basically, if every team that wanted to enter a competition in America could enter and play, that's what it is. It's like the FA Cup in England that has like 700 teams in it at the beginning. Um, but they met in that competition, I think, in 2017, and the crew were upset by FC Cincinnati, and that was like a big deal. And, of course, FC Cincinnati fans were like, well, we should be in MLS. We just beat the crew, and, you know, we're the best team in Ohio and all that. And it was kind of just like a the crew have never taken the U.S. Open Cup seriously, which I think is an issue. But, um, you know, I think crew fans were kind of just like, ah, oh, whatever, just the annoying little club down the road. But then Cincinnati gets into MLS in 2019, and the first three years they were in it, they were completely terrible, like the worst team in the league, literally three years running. But every time they would play the crew, they would play out of their minds, like, every time. Um, and I don't, the crew, I think, have lost to them once in MLS, but, like, they've drawn a bunch. They're, the first time they played in MLS, it was in Columbus, and the crew went down two goals in the first half but and then got two back. Like, that's happened, like, three times. Um, but, you know, it's a new rivalry, but it, it actually does tend to get pretty spicy on the field. And the fan base is, you know, it, it's respectful. But, you know, I, I think there is genuine beef between the two clubs. And do we know this year if that is an away game, right? I uh, think the, it's at Cincinnati. The is first it one would be at Columbus. It's a home game for Columbus. Okay. And then they meet. They always group the games like a month apart and the next one is in Cincinnati. But, yeah, um, that's coming up. That should be a good game. That's definitely must-see TV for me. Uh, can't wait. Yeah. So we've got a whole smorgasbord of stuff to cover coming soon. Nice. Should be exciting. Well, um, I think that takes us to a little over 90 minutes, which – we try to wrap in 90, but we had a lot a lot of stuff to talk about. Yeah, we did. Um, hoping that the next race, 
although it's going to be tough to top that the last one yeah so but anything we'll can happen yeah so. we'll see what happens anything else any parting words of wisdom before we go here no uh mick schumacher congrats if you're 100 percent listening and um i'm excited to see where we go all right so as i said coming up crew versus chicago july 9th dc the 13th cincinnati the 17th and this sunday the red bull ring in austria this has been tackling the chicane 2520 studios copyright 2022 see you guys next time